Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hi, Maeve. Hi, Tim. How are you? Uh, not too bad. Welcome back to uh, Social Distance, the show about the pandemic. Hosted by me and Catherine, usually. I'm Jim uh, Hamblin. I'm a doctor. Catherine is a podcast professional. And Maeve is sitting in today. Mm-hmm. For Catherine. Yes, the excellent Maeve Higgins, who is a master of all trades. I'm six foot ten. I'm... <laughs> no, I just want to pick a bone with you just so we start off like okay. clean and yeah. fresh for this sure. episode where I'm replacing Catherine this time. But like... I listened to the show and last week, you know, she very kindly was like doing the handover and you said something like, yeah, like there are different strains of the virus and there are different hosts, <laughs> like some, no. and, you know, and she certainly balked and me with my <laughs> headphones in, I think we were both, you know, you made us both uncomfortable, even across the <laughs> airwaves. Oh my gosh. And I understand this is a show about the pandemic, but I also understand there are better <laughs> <laughs> similes you can use <laughs> better ways to understand how people are different than through the lens <laughs> of <laughs> strains of the virus yeah no that's that's helpful feedback yeah. thank you i apologize for comparing you to a strain of this <laughs> deadly virus thanks Jim. um you are if anything a ray of sunshine which has the ability to cause the virus to denature and degrade and destroy <laughs> again terrible yeah i think you know your brain is just wired to think about corona and that's why we need you and that's why this podcast is important but personally it's really bad for your personality yeah no it's (laughs) it's i know and i appreciate you saying that it has consumed me and kind of rewired my brain because Mm -hmm. it's been this Mm all-encompassing um issue i would love to talk and write about something else and i look forward to that day yeah which seems to be kind of the question that's on everyone's mind right now because of vaccination is really what when is that day you know i've been thinking a lot about the vaccination too because obviously i'm not in any way useful to society you know and i'm (laughs) not ill in any other way so i'm you know it's like far off prospect for me but it's been interesting because i came back to ireland where um you know i cosplay this irish person and so I come back every now and then (laughs) you're with your family you you're back in Ireland for the winter with your your family correct I am yeah um when you were last on the show things were okay in Ireland and they're not now yeah like the last time I was talking to you like in Ireland it was um really really low basically no community transmission like People were feeling safe and schools were open. And then, you know, the government made the decision to loosen restrictions over Christmas. It was kind of like, we'll have Christmas, you know. And now, sadly, we're really paying for that. There's been more people in hospital than ever before and higher deaths. And it's very tough here at the moment. There's very strict restrictions until the end of February. If you had any doubt you know, which I'm sure like the listeners don't. But if you had any doubt that like social distancing and staying home 
works. Just look at Ireland between December and January. It's so sad. It really is because the numbers just like shot up. And we also have the the version that spreads faster, you know, the yeah. Catherine of the virus. The, yeah. the Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> Not the more innocuous, um, fun-loving version. Yeah, not the bumbling May version. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Can't find its way into any human cells. Um, so it's a hard time there, but you also have vaccines rolling out. How is the vaccine Yeah, exactly. So that is going well in Ireland. I think we're in number two in Europe for per head. I mean, obviously, like, if you grew up in, like, Texas or California, you're going to laugh because it's like, we have vaccinated 60,000 people. <laughs> and that, But in Ireland, that is a big deal. It's a, a small population. Yeah. And so I think we're just behind Denmark for the speed of the vaccine. And the government is saying, look, as fast as we're getting it in, we're putting it out, which is what you want, I think. Well, congrats. That's good. So it's a dark time, but also there's there's optimism. Um, Definitely. And like, I guess my Instagram is filling up with like friends and family members who got it and, you know, stuff like there's, of course, there's bright sparks and I'm so relieved for the older people. But there's been some scandals here about vaccine distribution, which I don't know if they would have reached your ears. I am kind of a magnet for scandals, but (laughs) I'm not sure I know what you're referring to. You're like that woman in Bridgerton who like writes a scandal newsletter behind a facade of decency. (laughs) And I know you won't get that reference. Lady Whistledown. Oh my God. You've been watching that show? I might have watched it. Jesus, what is going on (laughs) with you? (laughs) What else is one to do? in this season read Um, medical journals (laughs) no we need ways to escape um oh yeah so let me tell you so this very well respected well thought of doctor he's high up in one of the dublin hospitals i guess they had some leftover doses of a vaccine from what i understand you can get extra vaccine out of the vials yeah there's some flexibility there it turns out Mm -hmm. so he discovered like late at night they had 16 extra doses and proceeded to give them to his family members, you know, mm. many of whom are just like college age kids and not at all priorities. And so, of course, you know, lots of people were really upset and thought it was, you know, I don't know, nepotism, favoritism, not just not good. Yeah, unprofessional behavior. That, but yeah, well, were they going to go to waste otherwise? That was his thinking. He was kind of like, okay, what arms can I put these into immediately that I know will take, you know, so that they don't go to waste. But there's also the argument to be made that he should have, I don't know, like done a draw with the staff or there's lots of patients in the hospital. I don't know. I don't know. These are complex ethical questions. I've heard about sort of similar things happening around the US, Mm -hmm. people getting getting shots just because they happen to be in the right place at the right time. And there seems like this interesting tension where, of course, no one wants them t- to go to waste. But it, every time that happens, it seems like a planning failure where we're not really actually effectively getting the vaccines to the people who need them most. Um, I'm not yeah. sure how to think about that. Um, I've been given access to your mailbox, which I was like, yes. Uh-oh. Can I give you some listener questions, Jim? Are you ready? Oh, I love yes, yes. Okay, um, good. Please. 
So this listener, her name is Megan, and she wrote in, she lives in California with her husband and two young kids. Their families are all in the Midwest, though. Then they haven't seen their families in two years. So she writes, we would love to visit our families this summer, but it is my understanding that children won't be vaccinated in 2021. If that's the case, is it safe for us to travel to visit our family with our kids if all adults have been vaccinated. Both sets of grandparents are crazy about their grandkids and are so eager to see them. Huh. I know. Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. Just a note on the premise. I'm not sure that children won't be vaccinated. It's not happening immediately, but I think there's a lot of uncertainty in the time scale of all this. But taking uh, you know that part of it aside... I have to think that once the, you, you know, the rest of the family is vaccinated, that you, you should be able to do this pretty safely. And mm. uh, I think we we know that kids can carry and transmit the virus to family members. But if you have a situation where the only susceptible people are the kids and the rest of the group is vaccinated and the vaccines continue to, you know, look as effective as they have been. Mm-hmm. It seems just extremely low risk that someone in that bubble is going to develop illness of any severity. So I'm optimistic about that. Yeah. Okay, so Jim, here's another question in their own voice. This comes from our voice mailbag. This is Lori. I'm calling from Plymouth, Michigan. My question is, will there be or is there right now a registry of who is getting the vaccine I know here in Michigan, there's a state registry of like childhood immunizations. So you, your kid has to have uh, all the required immunizations before school starts. So will the COVID vaccines be included on a thing like that? It seems very confusing. Okay, thanks so much. Bye. I mean, I guess sometimes I, it blows my mind that there's the states have different. So like Michigan State has a kind of a system, but like other states don't. I mean, that adds to the confusion in my mind. But what do you think? Well, in Ireland, do you have a national registry of who's been vaccinated? Um, Do you know? Let me just ask my secretary. Oh, okay. (laughs) No, it's fine. I mean, I think a lot of people are unsure about all of the requirements and laws around this. I have no idea. Yeah. Mm. It's a complex issue, right? Because Mm. we tend to be really buttoned up about medical privacy issues and Mm -hmm. you know um we don't want these things in some sort of enormous registry for most medical conditions but or medical procedures or er, medical histories um you know even when they seem innocuous they have implications for yeah unpredictable things but at the same time vaccination is sort of unique because it affects you know everyone around you so it's not purely a personal decision um let's talk to a bioethicist who can kind of walk us through what happens and why Oh, yes, Jim. Thank you. I've never spoken to a bioethicist before. This is so fun. I thought it would be a good pairing for you, honestly. (laughs) Who is it? Uh, So we're going to talk to uh, Dr. Ruth Faden. She's a professor of medical bioethics at Johns Hopkins University, and she is the founder of the Berman Institute of Bioethics. Amazing. Hi, Dr. Faden. This is Jim. Thank you so much for for speaking with us today. Sure. My pleasure. Hi, Dr. Faden. Maeve? Hi, Maeve. Yeah, lovely to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. 
could we start off by, could you just say um, your title and a sentence or two about what you do? My name is Ruth Faden, and I'm the founding director of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. Most of my work has been on questions of justice and allocation. And right now I'm working pretty much all the time on the pandemic. We're so glad to have you and you must be very much in demand. Myself and Jim were just talking about vaccinations. And, you know, how do you think things are going so far from your point of view? Globally or within particular countries? (laughs) Let's start there. (laughs) Let's start with the US, I think. Right, because globally it's a disaster. Uh, Within the United States, it's not so great, but it's way better than it is uh, globally. So right now, Mm -hmm. uh, we are really in a bad situation, as I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast knows. We've hit the horrible 400,000 people dead mark. Mm -hmm. And uh, while there is some indication that the death rate and the hospitalization rate may be flattening, it's still not clear. And if it does plateau, it's going to plateau at a really bad place, which is the place we're in now. And so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we uh, only have about somewhere in the order of 12 and a half million doses administered to people. That's not full courses, that's doses, because we're still dealing with the two-dose vaccine. And uh, that's nowhere near the pace we need to be able to get our arms around this terrible Mm -hmm. loss of life. So we need to really pick up the pace in this country. Yeah. So in the months leading up to the actual rollout of the vaccine, there was a lot of discussion of how we created hierarchies and lists of who would get it when. Um, How has that short supply or less than expected supply changed or put an emphasis on those difficult decisions about who should be vaccinated first? So uh, getting in the summer and into the fall, an awful lot of effort was put into coming up with prioritization frameworks with a lot of attention to the ethics justifications for which groups should go where, first phase, second phase, first half of the first phase, second half of the first phase, and so on. And to some extent, that planning had to occur when it did in the absence of specifics about either the particular characteristics of the vaccines, like how effective they would be, whether they would work for everybody equally well. Mm -hmm. We didn't know when we were doing that planning what the epidemiological context would be. This exactly how bad or or better the pandemic would be when vaccines started to become available. And we didn't know the pace of the supply. So a lot of that planning was done with reasonable assumptions about those three things. But knowing that the particulars would necessarily have an impact on what could be done. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, and I've been part of those efforts, and I was part of those efforts, so I will include myself you know, when I, when I raise this criticism, mm-hmm. uh, there was insufficient attention to matching the carefully thought through schema, the prioritization roadmaps with the realities of mass vaccination programs. How so? Well, it's it's hard as we as we are learning in the U.S. It is hard to yeah. mount massive vaccination programs in a context of constrained supply with complicated criteria for who should go when. So, if we look to a country where things have gone very very well, Israel, 
Now, again, Israel is sort of totally the opposite of the U.S. It's tiny, tiny population, tiny geography, and a really coordinated healthcare system. So like nothing like the U.S., but they began and continued with a very simple prioritization scheme that was age descending. And that's a lot easier to sort of get your hands around logistically or so it's argued than the way in which we've sort of marched our way through in the United States. Wait, so they didn't give it to doctors and nurses first? They did. You're right, Jim. I should step back. That's pretty much universal. So almost all the plans globally privilege high risk health workers. Now, this is one of those, don't get me started. What has happened in the U.S. is that the health workforce has not been narrowly interpreted in many contexts. So here, I'm kind of arguing against the point I made earlier, which is simpler is better when you're trying to do something that requires a lot of coordination and has to move at a fast pace. When you're trying to get a lot of people vaccinated in a short period of time, and you've got a very... Uh, logistically challenging vaccine type, as we do with the, especially with Pfizer, but also with Moderna, those logistics are, are challenging, right? And so if you have to keep things super, super subgroups and subgroups of subgroups, it can turn into a nightmare pretty quickly. On the other hand, there were several ethics reasons for prioritizing what we've come to call frontline health workers. It's kind of gotten morphed into anybody who's doing anything for health systems in some cases. I wonder if there's any other example, you know, is there a state or something? Israel is tricky because they're not vaccinating Palestinians. So I don't know about them as holding them up as a great example. Well, I think maybe you want to distinguish between two different things. They are a great example of an effective public health program. I'm not saying whether it's an equitable public health program. It's an efficient. They're doing an incredible job of getting a lot of people vaccinated in short compass. Right. So that's a good distinction. That right. is very yeah. different from saying whether the Israeli government has a, a moral obligation to Palestinians, right, who are not living in the territory of Israel, but over which Israel has control. And that is a whole separate conversation. They are linked, but you want to be very careful. And just in general, so I started out with the global situation, just in general. The whole question of we sometimes call humanitarian situations of special concern. There are lots of places in the world right, wow. where, yes. where where we you know, <laughs> yeah. just start yeah, just start thinking, yeah. right? Where people are living, where the countries that have some jurisdiction, military or political over them, are not viewing them as citizens or residents of the country for purposes of vaccine distribution. That is so interesting. Mm -hmm. That's like a huge, horrible, terrible, ethical morass. It's awful. Uh, <laughs> it's awful, right? But what is going on in Israel, and, and the UK is doing reasonably well also, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what is going on in Israel is, is an example of what can be done with a, a really high degree of attention to detail and within the system in which they're operating for people who are uh, legal residents of Israel, whether they're uh, mm -hmm. Arab or Jewish or Christian, the system mm -hmm. is, is quite fair, right? You, yeah. you, you just have to show that you're the age at the time that that age cutoff is called up. And they also managed to solve as best as we can figure out or largely solve the what do we do with the doses at the end of the day problem. 
Oh, what do what we do were they wondering do? about that? We were yeah, so yeah. so yeah, so this and again, I'm not an expert on the Israeli situation. Mm-hmm. I'm just watching it the way lots of people who are working in this space are watching it. But could I tell you, Dr. Fader, there's a, there was a situation in Ireland where I am at the moment where a doctor gave out 16 extra doses to his family because he was worried they wouldn't get used. But then members of the public found out and were very upset, understandably. Yeah. But I can see it from both sides. So look, this is a practical problem that needs to be dealt with pragmatically, but also with some attention to to concerns of of ethics and equity, right? So the worst thing we want is to throw away like a single dose even of this precious vaccine. That's ethically unacceptable. And it's from a public health point of view, just dumb, right? So if you haven't planned for it and you're at the end of the day and you're past the hours that it is permissible or close to the end of the window, right? where the vaccine must be administered or tossed, I don't have any trouble with grabbing any arm you can get from anybody who wants to be vaccinated, <laughs> right? So, yeah. but, but, but stepping back, it's possible to anticipate <laughs> that you could be in that circumstance and plan for it, right? Mm-hmm. So recognizing that you, even if you schedule appointments and, and you have a very efficient system and you're able to rely on, on smartphones and apps to prompt people, which is not always the case given the equity issues with regard to access and use of, mm. of, of technology. But let's just assume you've got a you know really great system. There are going to be no-shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And they're going to be just the way the vaccine is drawn out of the vial. There just could be extra steps. So uh, whether you use sort of social media to alert people, kind of like vaccine flash mobs, right? You know, it looks like mm-hmm. we're going to have X doses. If you can show up by Y o'clock, hmm. there's a queue. There are a couple of pharmacies. I live in Washington, D.C. that are reputed. I haven't seen the lines myself. I've just seen the reports. They basically let people know we're going to stop vaccinating at 8 p.m. And you can start queuing whenever you want. If there's any vaccine left at the end of that time, you know, it's first come, first serve. And there have been reports of people lining up at like, you know, three in the afternoon for the possibility of a vaccine um, access availability at eight. Right? Yeah, I mean, people do that for Hamilton tickets. So it's there's so much. Yeah, get... it's exactly, Maeve. But yeah. honestly, this is so much more consequential than whether you you know you got in to see Sting or you get in to see Hamilton. I mean, this is just a lot more is at stake, and uh, a lot of the people who are really needing the vaccine right now are not people who are positioned to be able to figure out how to check every two seconds on a website or wait forever for a phone call or, you know, even necessarily navigate the system in a language that they don't know. Yeah. So we have a lot of equity sort of challenges buried in the details. And then we have the equity challenges that come from what we like to call the justified distrust of communities of color and poor people with respect to social and, and institutions generally and public health programs. Justified distrust is a, mm-hmm. is a great term. That's so explicit. That's yeah. really good. <laughs> yeah. One of, one of our, one of our, my colleagues came up with that a while ago and I, I rather like it. I think it captures mm-hmm. exactly what we're looking at here. So it sounds like it's this balance between speed and equity um, where we, we can't do it perfectly because the speed is also of the essence well it's speed of a certain it's speed of a certain sort 
right? Okay. Of course, I have a hammer. I do ethics for a living, so I see lots of ethics nails. Right? I see them everywhere. <laughs> but but um, really, it's, this is all a matter of sort of trading off the different values or trying to get into alignment, mm-hmm. the different values that we care about, that we want to help secure through the vaccine that we've got. And right now, given the crisis context in the U.S., in the U.K., in many countries around the world, we're just we're overwhelmed and potentially overwhelmed even more looking ahead, depending on what we're going to learn about uh, the implications of the multiple kinds of variants that are popping up now. Right. We had a question from a listener asking about um, if and how it's being uh, kept track of who's been vaccinated and who has not. Um, is there any intent or um, way or discussion about the ethics of of doing that, of having a registry, of having indications among people who has and hasn't been vaccinated? So it's a great question. There's two pieces to this. One, absolutely, we have, as a public health matter, we have to keep track. That's non-negotiable. Now, the question is, what other data do you collect? Age, ethnicity, location. There's that, right? And there are lots of issues that are related to that. And then there's this issue of should any perks result from the fact that you've been fully vaccinated? And that's the conversation about vaccination passports or vaccination passes of some kind. Like that you might not have to wear a mask if if you've been vaccinated or something like that that could actually incentivize. Yeah, or maybe you don't. You have to wear a mask, but if you have been uh, exposed, and ordinarily you would be a contact, and you'd have to be quarantined for two weeks, would you get a quarantine pass, for okay. example? So I don't think anybody is going to mm-hmm. say you don't have to wear a mask, right? Right? Sure. Now. We don't know enough. We don't know. Yeah, uh, and, and I've actually and just I, written about yeah. that today, so we're clear on that. But just in terms of the idea of what kind of thing might eventually, yeah, it become, could, it could yeah. be something like that, and that's a kind of calculus you gamble too, right? And no one's proposing that in the U.S. I do believe that it is the policy in Israel. But if you could prove you were vaccinated, could you travel to another country? Well, that's you, okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to stop where I started because I maybe mm-hmm. sometime <laughs> you'll want to talk about the global situation. From a global mm-hmm. point of view, it's a complete structural injustice mess. Yeah. Because if, in fact, we're going to start privileging people, which makes a lot of sense, depending on what we learn about onward transmission in these vaccines, which we don't know enough yet, if we start basically saying, if you've been fully vaccinated, then you can start traveling globally. And we have a context in which a very tiny percentage of the world's population outside of high income countries gets access to vaccine, who's going to be able to travel globally? Yeah. Right. Uh, It's, it's an awful picture. And, uh, and I will just end with this, the director general of the WHO, I guess it was two days ago, gave an address and he made the stunning point. And I will leave you with this, that there were 39 million doses of vaccine administered in 49 high-income countries as of two days ago. That's 39 million doses. You want to know how many doses have been administered so far in a low-income country as of two days ago? Want to guess? I mean, also that the population really outnumbers high-income countries. Oh, by tons, right, by tons, right? So I won't keep you in suspense, and I'm looking right from the director general's uh, remarks. 25. So per capita, that's far, far lower. 25 doses total. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Against 39 million. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. So um, 
I mean, I don't think people have begun to get their heads around how wide the disparity is and how urgent it is to try to do something about this, right? And we're sitting there being concerned about what to do because this doctor gave it to his family. I mean, it's it's there are definitely ethical issues there. I don't mean to dismiss them, but yeah. let, we have to put that in perspective as well. So with that, yeah. um, it's a pleasure talking to both of you. And you, so fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for your insight and all your thought on this and best of luck with all your work because it's yes. the work is not going to stop for a while. No, it's <laughs> not. And, and what you're doing is pretty important too. I think the more that people are getting informed conversation about what is happening with respect to the pandemic, the better it will be for the public health professionals to do their work and get their hands thank around you. it. So thank you as well. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Right, that was such a great insight into like the global picture, Jim. Mm-hmm. When you think about uh, the idea of things that might seem like simple incentives for vaccination, like vaccine passports, like, you know, being able to travel or not wearing masks as an incentive, if that proves, you know, safe. Mm. The idea of that exacerbating disparities at the level that it seems they potentially could is... It's like everyone in, uh, eventually, you know, Americans um, would be able to travel and people from other countries wouldn't. That would, it it could become really stark like that. Totally. And also that phrase that she used is also like applicable when you think about like how the global north like exploits and abuses the global south. Yeah. It used to just be um, like anti-vax or vaccine skeptics. And then people started saying hesitant now I think mm. you have terms like justified distrust. I think the more you can be not dismissive about people's <laughs> reservations, the more productive it is. Yeah. Whether or not you deem that distrust to be justified in any particular person's case. I mean, honestly, I was thinking about it in like arguments with a boyfriend. <laughs> when you could just say, you did this wrong before. <laughs> I'm thinking the word. So I'm I have justified distrust. <laughs> Yeah, that would be more equitable. (laughs) Oh, man. It would be really gratifying to only have personal arguments with bioethicists where you could Mm -hmm. each lay out your terms in very logical ways. (laughs) The terms of your agreement, the terms of your grievances, the terms of your requests. Uh, yeah, and also, you know, like their whole deal is that they go back and think about, was I right back then? <laughs> like they even do it like retrospectively, which is such a bomb. <laughs> yeah, and thinking of the downstream consequences. You know, okay, well, yes. I could admit that I am wrong in this situation, but then I would also have to admit that I was wrong in these other situations and that would only make our problem worse. So I'm not going to admit that I was wrong. Um <laughs> Yeah, I know. Well, I think, you know, first of all, I just thought we were going to her for answers and we did get really cool answers, but she's also really given me a lot to think about questions wise. And also just honestly, like how lucky we are, you know, touch wood, able to kind of sit down comfortably and discuss this stuff. Yeah, I think this would be helpful to keep in mind when we do inevitably hear more stories like uh, six doses going to someone inequitably or um, those are kind of local 
interest stories because they do stir up this sort of tangible rage. Like I, I could have been that per my grandparent yeah. could have been the person who got that. Yeah. But to keep the overall disparities in focus will actually be, I think, kind of a, hopefully a helpful perspective as that keeps happening. I don't know if you saw this because it was all over the news here. We had inauguration day of Joe Biden as the 46th president of the United States. Yes, I absolutely watched. Was so glad to have this bright spot. You know, Ayanna Presley tweeted something like, you know, don't thank black women. Policy is our love language. <laughs> I thought that was so funny and cool. And then I was looking at his policy ideas and what he's like doing in the first day. And that was that was really hopeful. I mean, mm. rejoining the WHO, you've got to enjoy that, Jim. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the darkest moments of the pandemic. And we, we did, did an episode mm. about this, but that when, when we left that, it was that not only we were abandoning our position of leadership in the world, but that we would be really, really behind when the next pandemic starts to arise. We're not even, we don't even have a seat at the table. Yeah. Uh, so what are the five love languages then? Policy? Um, policy. Policy, podcasting, <laughs> uh, gift giving. <laughs> Physical touch. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Dogs, I think, is the, I think fourth, dogs is the one. fourth one. And then um, English, I think. Actually. Okay. Well, mm -hmm. then policy, it is equitable, ethical policy. <laughs> Jim, okay, thanks for having me and having me do the listener mailbag. I hope we answered the listeners' questions. Like, what do you think? I feel that in the course of this discussion, we may have raised more questions than we answered, mm -hmm. but... I think uh, hopefully that's that's useful because I no one, including Dr. Faden, seems to have clear notions of exactly how everything should be monitored, where information, yeah. n you know, how do you keep it so it's only vital and that it's not misused and that it's done efficiently and effectively. And I think that's something we really need to keep an eye on, um, mm -hmm. and is going to be really important to building trust and and ensuring that equity. Also, I think everybody understands it's like this is ongoing. So obviously you're, you're going to follow up. You're going to solve this. You are going to solve this coronavirus crisis. Yeah, I did Sooner make a promise. Sooner rather than later. So. <laughs> I made a promise to everyone last January. I will solve this. And um, <laughs> Yeah. So thanks for having me, Jim. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Maeve. I miss you. I wish that you were here in New York. Um, I know. You know. And, and I hope you can come back soon once you've got your vaccine tattoo, which I think we all need to get <laughs> right on the face. Uh, right on the face. <laughs> Just a nice big V starting at your mouth, going right up to your eyebrows. Oh, man. <laughs> so, you, so you look happy? Yeah. Happy oh. you're vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not creepy at all. We'll have more ideas. Hopefully you'll join again in the future, maybe, if you'd be willing. Yeah, do you want me to do the credits? I love doing credits. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Okay, you can do the middle one. I'll do the first line, because I think it... Okay, ready? Okay, this show was produced by Kevin Townsend with help from senior producer AC Valdez. Now you go, Jim. Write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com or leave a voicemail at 202-642-6487. 
If you like this show and want access to all of The Atlantic's journalism, the best way to do that is by subscribing at theatlantic.com slash support us. Well done, Maeve. Is that good? Thank you. Yeah, it's good, right? Yeah, The Atlantic, is it? Interesting. I've never heard of that. <laughs> it is the ocean that divides us. <laughs> it is. Oh. Okay, Jim. Thank you so much, Maeve. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.